Now I want to begin my talk, which is called A Desperate Gaze in a Counterintuitive Direction, by citing a statistic that came out a couple weeks ago. We mentioned it on our podcast, but um, the CDC uh, noted that from 2009 to 2021, the share of American high school students who say they feel persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness rose from 26% to 44%. That's the highest level of teenage sadness ever recorded. Um, it's, a, it's a big deal. So when we're talking about hope in a weary world, that's the, describing a very weary set of teenagers. But I think it also, they're parented by very weary, weary parents and very weary grandparents. And they're going to churches that are very weary or they're signing onto social media sites that are very weary. Or uh, we're walking down city streets that feel very weary. Now, for the first possible solution to this, I would go to Stevie Nicks. Um, and not where I th you think I'm going to go, because I like watching those videos of the guy roller skating to dreams. You know, that's an incredible, if you don't know what I'm talking about, look it up. Uh, dreams took on a new life. Uh, it never really died, so uh, it took on a new life on TikTok last year. But Stevie Nicks was interviewed uh, by Tavi Gevinson in The New Yorker a couple of weeks ago. And did you know that her father was the CEO of Dial Soap and Greyhound Bus Lines and Armor Foods? I didn't know that. I, it was nowhere on the internet until she said it in that interview. But she said to Tavi, who was, they were talking about everyone's so sad, and she said, I think you should go out and rent some great movies uh, that you've always wanted to see, like Storks. <laughs> it's my favorite movie. I've watched it six times, and it's just so great. It's about the storks going out of business, and they become like FedEx and they only deliver packages, no more babies. And they accidentally push the wrong button and one baby comes through, there's the little star of the whole movie. The storks are her only friends. You just have to buy this movie and have it on replay at all times. <laughs> it's a cartoon, but it's a massive movie of life and love and sadness and tragedy. That's my answer to depression, storks. <laughs> now I've seen storks, it's great. So she's onto something. And we talk about technologies of the heart. We're talking about storks, right? I thought that was incredible. Now, I think storks is part of the issue, but I think uh, inflated anthropology is another part of the issue. Now, when I talk about anthropology, you're going to get really sick of this, it may, but probably not as sick as I am of the phrase anthropology. And anthropology is simply your operating uh, theory of human nature. When you say human beings are such and such, what do you mean? What are their potentials? What are their liabilities? What are human beings like? What are we, when we say nobody's perfect, that's an anthropology. When we say... Uh, Judgment kills. That's an anthropology. We all have these operating theories of change, and as such, we have operating anthropologies. Now, one of the things that we're seeing in our current um, milieu of depression and hopelessness is, I think, a response to a high anthropology, which means an inflated view of human nature. We use this terminology on the site so much in our work that it feels like we've um, 
that it's easy to sort of just uh, go in one ear and out the other. But this book is written for people who maybe don't read Mockingbird um, and might want to know what on earth we're talking about. But the reason that, because every time you read about teenagers being sad, what is the, the big thing people talk about is always social media. And I was, uh, on the way here, I was hearing from a board member who said, maybe it's time to have a moratorium on talking about social media on Mockingbird, because it's just kind of boring <laughs> at this point. Um, we get it, it's bad, uh, it's not really doing great things for us. Um, now, for those of us who are interested in things like the law and the gospel, social media is the great illustration of the difference between who you think you should be and who you present to the world and who you actually are. It's this incredible petri dish of illustrations, and that's why we talk about it so much. And that's why we see it at the heart of a lot of the um, misery that is caused today. What, uh, also, another New Yorker article a few weeks ago called it the, the shaming industrial complex, which has risen up online, the shaming industrial complex, which is a constant sort of uh, gotcha mechanism uh, of making people feel terrible about who they actually are when it's revealed that they're not who they present themselves to be. As a result, the writer George Saunders, who CJ might be learning from soon, uh, says that these trenches we're in are so deep. These trenches we're in are so deep and has something to do, again, with our inflated view of what human beings, what we think other people should be and who we actually are. Now I'm going to read to you about one of the ways that we have avoided an accurate anthropology, a low anthropology, and the way that it causes misery. And this is from the chapter, How We Avoid Low Anthropology, and it's the section called The So-Called Normal. The so-called normal is what happens when we develop a conception of what's normal that's out of sync with reality. Here, though, our conception of normal narrows to the point that more and more of our lived experience falls outside of its bound. I am not just referring to the perception that, quote, normal people have 2.5 kids, a happy relationship, a clean house, and a job they find fulfilling. I am referring to the unspoken sense that it is not normal to be sad or grieving or confused or angry or envious or lonely or barely hanging on. The so-called normal, which I would say 44% strikes me as a fairly normal amount of people, is a form of high anthropology that produces inordinate anguish. Why would I say high anthropology? And by the way, perhaps you read the phrase so-called normal and it gives you pause. After all, our sense of what's normative has never been so expansive, right? So many behaviors and opinions and infirmities and preferences we used to consider off-limits are no longer considered such. The palette of what's appropriate in romantic relationships, for example, is far broader than it was in the 1950s when heterosexual lifelong marriage was the primary socially acceptable arrangement. But while our intellectual conception of normal behavior may have expanded, our sense of what constitutes a normal emotional life has been outfitted with a brand new pair of Spanx. Social media does provide exhibits A through Z here. I have got my high school, 25th high school reunion uh, this month. I'm not going. <laughs> uh, no way. 
my life is one long high school reunion in the age of social media. And I, 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 you know, the only reason I would be tempted to go is because all of the successful, happy, uh, shiny friends of mine from high school that I see on social media, uh, I'd love to see, you know, get close enough to them to see their blemishes on their skin. You know, I want to know that they're as real as I am. But I also don't want to be reminded of the awkward person I was as an 18-year-old. So I'm not going. And I would suggest you don't go either. <laughs> but what I mean by that is when I look at my high school, um, my high school classmates on social media, my sense of what's normative about their lives is success, 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 happiness, success, killing it, crushing it. And, and that I am somehow not normal by being a guy who's filled up with insecurity and confusion and who's had a really tough time the last two years and hasn't made lemonade out of lemons, right? Who hasn't won the pandemic, to quote uh, Anne's uh, language. Renowned therapist Esther Perel refers to this, I'm, back, I'm reading the book again, refers to this constricted emotional scale as the tyranny of positivity. She notes that language itself should be our giveaway. Positivity has become such the standard that in her view, we've had to pathologize negativity for it to be permissible. So feelings of sadness and hurt are not regular expected sensations so much as the result of abnormal human functioning. Speaking to an interview in 2021, Perel said, under the tyranny of positivity, you can't be sad. You can't be blue, melancholic. You only get permission to feel sad if you're depressed. So let's pathologize it. And if depression isn't enough, let's say you've had trauma. Trauma is the licensed language to talk about pain and suffering at this moment. That doesn't mean there is no trauma. But it means that if, we have to, that if we say the word trauma, it gives us also permission to say, I have pain and I have suffered and it was hard and I have legacies from it. Now, Perel is not suggesting that depression and trauma aren't real problems, only that the widespread usage of these terms should indicate just how much pressure we are all under to avoid normalizing negativity. Pathologization allows our inner life to fall outside the accepted range without threat of judgment. And yet if everyone deals with some form of trauma, aren't these states just as quote-unquote normal as their opposites? A high anthropologist extrapolates their standard of normalcy from what they see around them, while a low anthropologist extrapolates it from what they see inside themselves. This is why Anne Lamott so wisely counseled that we, quote, not compare your insides to other people's outsides. Of course, this is much easier said than done. Even Lamott herself confesses to adopting a, quote, smart and charming facade in her interactions with others. She refers to this facade as her emotional bodyguard and claims its chief job is to keep people from seeing her true self which is, quote, very human, which is to say beautiful and kind of a mess, needy, insecure, judgmental. We all walk around with emotional bodyguards in tow. Thus, we perceive what's normal as better rather than worse than things really are. Confidence, contentment, calm, this relatively narrow slice of human feeling is what a high anthropology casts as regular.
Everything else is the exception. A low anthropology expands our sense of what's normal to include the darker end of the spectrum. A low anthropologist assumes that people are far more anxious, sensitive, obsessive, confused, insecure, and at odds with themselves than their appearance indicates. Two decades spent in Christian ministry fielding all manner of closed-door confessions have only confirmed this for me. Gloomy as it may sound, though, this bedrock truth offers deep consolation. Because what it means is the only reason another person or couple or family seems to have it all together is because I don't know them very well. <laughs> that idea alone might pause some of our resentments. Moreover, the broader our conception of normalcy becomes, the less taboo it will be to confess our hurts and fears and missteps. And the quicker we are to confess what's really going on, the less hiding there will be. And the less hiding we encounter and engage in, the more love we may experience. Because you can't love someone who's hiding. They got the walls up. The impenetrable veil, as my dad talked about it last night. One of the other things I talk about in low anthropology is the idea of limitation, which in Christian language is really creatureliness, that we are the creature, not the creator. And there's, uh, when we talk about things like burnout, um, usually underlying, I think, the, the, the psychology, the, culture, the cultural assumptions, is that we can sort of do it all, and, uh, or that we can know it all. A, a, a low anthropology says there are actually pretty hard limits on how much you can do. This is why the, I like the use of the word bandwidth. I usually, don't usually like technological metaphors for human life because we start to believe that we're all machines that can be upgraded and all that stuff. And it just feels dehumanizing after a while. But um, bandwidth implies that you can only do so much uh, and it, that you cannot actually do it all. Uh, the other big problem in our society, I think, right now is this idea of ironclad certainty, that you can know all there is to know about any given thing. A low anthropology would say you can't actually have comprehensive knowledge of anything. And that includes yourself. Um, so when you're arguing with someone and you're 99% sure about something, by default, there's going to be 1% you don't know. Now, uh, for me, this, involved, this is, speaks to my own depression. I'm going to read another section from the book. And we, we have an episode of the, the Brothers All coming out about depression. So this is not like some revelation. I've talked about it much publicly before. But I was first diagnosed with clinical depression in my teens when I was in high school. Um, <laughs> go figure. And I've been medicated for it ever since. I used to think that intellectually, depression uh, resonated with low anthropology. And indeed, the fact of it does. Human beings are saddled with all sorts of conditions that hamper their flourishing, and many of which they've inherited in their genes. Some of that is mental health related in the case of anxiety and depression. Some of it is more corporal, like poor eyesight or allergies to various foods. And then there's the trauma we do inherit from our parents, the reflexes and phobias that they have because of what they've suffered in life and pass on to us. But conditions like these... Uh, expose another key human limitation, which is the limits of willpower to affect change. When it comes to depression, cartoonist Ali Brosh once wrote, trying to use willpower to overcome the apathetic sort of sadness that accompanies depression is like a person with no arms trying to punch themselves until their hands grow back. 
<laughs> it's like the drill Simeon was talking about. That your the IKEA drill into the mortar doesn't just isn't gonna work. Um, doubtless, the existence of depression and its refusal to yield to our control sinks with the low anthropology, which means a more sober understanding of what human beings are like. Yet the experience of depression is another matter because depression usually brings with it an alarming confidence about future darkness. To be depressed is to be certain that how you feel now is how you will always feel. There is no hope of one day feeling hopeful. Such certainty is actually indicative of a high anthropology insofar as it implies prescience over our emotions, or more than prescience, dominion over our emotions, which is demonstrably untrue, empirically so. A low anthropology holds that no one under heaven has the authority to claim such expertise about the future, emotional or otherwise, no matter how grim the horizon may look. A low anthropology therefore keeps the door of possibility cracked open and in this way speaks a counterintuitive word of hope to the depressed person. I do not mean to imply that adopting a low anthropology will cure a person's depression. It may help alleviate despair or it may not. Information tends to bounce off the depressed mind. I only know that I've found it comforting even during a depressive episode, to hold on to the truth of my own fallibility. The fact is that my brain's trustworthiness is compromised, its forecasting ability limited, and I thank God for that. In this way, the reality is that low anthropology paves a way, because people think you're being negative, and in fact, it's the opposite. That's what the whole book's about. A low anthropology paves a way for real growth and momentum, and it does this because it shifts our hopes from our own internal resources, which like willpower, discipline, and natural energy level, to external possibilities. It opens a person up to the outside world, to cooperation, collaboration, community, which means the possibility of love and the surprise of grace. I don't know of any greater example of this, of a low anthropology being the doorway to hope, than St. Dismas. Can we go to the next slide? Maybe you know St. Dismas. Um, this is Titian's representation of St. Dismas. He's the thief on the cross. He was the criminal crucified to the right of Jesus on Good Friday. And for him, he sort of recognizing his own culpability at the end of a dissolute life, he humbly asked Jesus to remember him in paradise. And maybe you remember what Jesus says in Luke 23. He says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus assured him this. In fact, Dismas is the only person in the New Testament whose quote-unquote forwarding address is assured. <laughs> it's the only one we, we actually find out will be in heaven, right? Such as it is. Uh, one writer in the Wall Street Journal a couple weeks ago said, if Dismas were a stock, all the smart money would have been shorting him right up until the hour of his death. <laughs> the charges against him were grim, the hour late, yet he neither presumed nor despaired. Rather, in hope, he literally turned to God 
and received a pardon that reveals not the limits of divine justice, but the depths of divine mercy. In fact, in this moment of blinding clarity and miraculous faith, Dismas looks at Christ in his earthly weakness and perceives his eternal strength. This is why he's a saint and you're not, though. <laughs> I'd like to think I'd be the good thief. I don't know. Um, first of all, I'd probably be a pretty bad thief. Like, I can't even sneak into my kids' rooms when they're sleeping and, like, do the tooth fairy thing. Oh, shoot. Was there some kids in here? Um, so I'd be the bad thief. Um, but this is why Frank Lake, the psychologist we talk about sometimes on Mockingbird, he defined faith as a desperate gaze in a counterintuitive direction. A desperate gaze in a counterintuitive direction. And he was referring to St. Dismas. And that is the truth. But I can't tell you it's also the law. If I tell you, just look, just, just, just cast your desperate gaze in a counterintuitive direction, you may do it, but you're not going to do it because I tell you to. You're going to do it out of the two reasons people do anything, which are desperation and love. For a beautiful picture of what the gospel looks like, we might look at this next man, which is a counterintuitive, a, a desperate gaze in a counterintuitive direction when we are not the one doing the gazing, but the one being gazed upon. This man is Muhammad Zeke. We talked about him a few years ago on the podcast. He's a foster father in L.A. who takes in only terminally ill children. He's buried 10 of them. He takes in the sickest of the sick. The intake coordinator in L.A. County says that if anyone ever calls and says this kid needs to go home on hospice, there's only one name we think of. He's the only one who would take a child who would possibly not make it. I'll read from the profile of him. Zeke spends his long days and sleepless nights caring for a bedridden six-year-old foster girl with a rare brain defect. She's blind and deaf. That's who she's, he's holding there. She has daily seizures. Her arms and legs are paralyzed. Zeke, quiet, devout, Libyan-born Muslim who lives in Azusa, where the great Holy Spirit revival took place, just wants her to know she's not alone in this life. I know she can't hear, can't see, but I always talk to her, he said. I'm always holding her, playing with her, touching her. She has feelings. She has a soul. She's a human being. And they referred to say that there was the boy with short gut syndrome who was admitted to the hospital 167 times in his eight-year life. He could never eat solid food, but the Bazeeks would sit with him at the dinner table with his own empty plate and spoon so he could sit with them as a family. There was the girl with the same brain condition as Bazik's current foster daughter who lived for eight days after they brought her home. She was so tiny that when she died, a doll maker made an outfit for her funeral. The key is you have to love them like your own, Bazik said. I know they are sick. I know they are going to die. I do my best as a human being and leave the rest to God. The kind of love that we see evidence in the work of Muhammad Bazik is very, is very much the insane kind of love that Todd was talking about. It's the kind that is extraordinarily painful because it is bound up in inevitable loss. It makes no sense. It's nonsensical. This degree of unconditional love. I believe it's the closest we're going to find of what God's love looks like. Muhammad sees these eyes 
these children through the eyes of faith, not according like a high anthropologist to what they might be able to do or produce, not even according to the love that they might be able to show him in return, because many of them are impaired in that way. He loves them simply because he loves them. There is nothing they can, quote, unquote, do for him. But I think grace goes a little further. Because I think when we're talking about the grace of God, we're not just talking about love for someone who can't do anything to return it. I think we're talking to love towards people who do everything they can to resist it and to fend it off. And for that reason, we need to turn to a advertisement from a German hardware store chain that my friend Jeff Dean sent me last week that I cannot get over. Let's, can we show that clip? I know it's a little corny, but to hell with resale value, people. You can't imagine this happening in Charlottesville, Virginia. I know friends who got sued one time. They were renting a property, and they got sued because uh, the the lady painted the hallway black. Um, And I guess that's not good for resale value. I think it's the opposite of what's good for resale value. And... um, but what I love about this, this, this commercial is that it is uh, the acknowledgement of her blackness, of her you know, internal struggle, her, the darkness, is actually the place where the smile begins. And it's not something she summons up on her own. It's the love of her father who is willing to, at great cost to himself, enter into that darkness with sacrificial love to to wash the feet with the nicest perfume possible, meaning to paint the outside of your house black, to destroy quantifiable value for something greater but ineffable. And that's what I think hope looks like. I think that's what the hope of God's grace looks like. I think it's absurd. I think it's purposeless. But I think it is the only hope.
I think God's grace uh, looks a lot like a father painting. Um, please take that down. <laughs> painting the house dark, becoming the curse, entering in, incarnational, salvific. It's all there. And it's the technology of the heart. It's also extremely weird. Remember last night Tom Holland said, let's lean into some of the weirdness? Like, like rise up to the grandeur of the pain and sorrow that we are surrounded in? Um, I'm going to read the very end of the book, which I know is a risk, but I thought it might um, be a nice way to end the conference. To those who have a hard time loving themselves, who feel acutely their own failures and shortcomings, and whose personal narratives seem impervious to spin, which is to say all of us in our unguarded moments, the words of Martin Luther might sound alluring. God receives none but those who are forsaken, restores health to none but those who are sick, gives sight to none but the blind, and life to none but the dead. He does not give saintliness to any but sinners, nor wisdom to any but fools. In short, he has mercy on none but the wretched, and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. To a person steeped in low anthropology, the announcement that God not only is real, but also loves you in full view of your personal reality to a sacrificial extent, comes as a sort of shock that transforms despair into hope. The well-worn plotline of death and taxes of tit-for-tat has been overturned. Forgiveness has come near to those who neither deserve nor ask for it. The merest possibility that such words of life might be trustworthy has the power to arrest our every downward spiral, especially where the Holy Spirit is involved. This is ultimately why a low anthropology carries such unparalleled urgency, because it forms the gateway to God, the source of love and life. This threshold of hope does not require anything of us. No credential, no manual, no finely tuned apology can prop its pillars up higher. Disaster only flings these doors open wider, beckoning us through when we are most broken down into gratitude and freedom and the arms of the Good Shepherd. Amen. All right, everyone. Thank you for being here. Again, thank you to those who make it possible. Thank you to our guest speakers. Thank you to those who are traveling. I'm going to say a prayer for us as we, as we leave. Um, but I do hope you'll stay in touch and, uh, and visit the book table. Um, and just God's blessings on each and every one of you. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for these past three days. We pray that the spirit we've encountered here and the love that we've caught glimpses of might go with us um, wherever we are headed next. I pray for all of uh, those who are carrying anxiety, returning to situations that they find overwhelming or simply confusing. 
I ask that you would grant us clarity, space, and just a little breathing room. Most of all, though, we ask that your peace, which passes understanding, and your grace, which seeks us out, uh, even in the midst of our resistance to it, might find us today and always. In Jesus' name, amen.